Hello, welcome. This is the Cabbages and Kings podcast, and I'm your host, Jonah Sutton-Morse. I'm guessing you didn't expect to hear me popping up in your feeds again, but here we are. Charles Pesur is back with short fiction recommendations. Caleb Russell and Rose Eveleth are talking to me about The Obelisk Gate, so you can get some reactions to Book 2 of the Broken Earth trilogy, recorded before Book 3 came out, long after Book 3 actually comes out, because we are a timely podcast here. Let's do a bit of housekeeping before we get into the episode. I am hoping to get to a regular monthly schedule in 2018 for Cabbages and Kings, which is, for those of you who've forgotten, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. Sometimes a bit longer than 30 minutes, but still in that range. In addition to this, I'm easing a bit into some reading and writing projects in 2018. These will include a reread of lots of Tolkien, which will probably lead to episodes of the podcast sometime in the future. And I will be blogging this at desiringdragons.wordpress.com. I've also started an email newsletter, which is mostly pictures of kids and animals on our hobby farm and my growing interest in being a Quaker and random thoughts about things I'm reading, so may or may not be appealing to any of you, but you can get that at tinyletter.com slash Morse if you're so inclined. The thing to do when you have one passion project is bump up to three. But for this episode, we have some short fiction recommendations from Charles Pesur, a discussion of N.K. Jemison's The Obelisk Gate with Rose Eveleth of the podcast Flash Forward and with Caleb Russell. We will start with our initial reactions to the book. Um, I thought it was pretty damn great. I, I admit it was a bit slower than uh, the fifth season, but for me, I think I enjoyed it more just because this time... We had ample time to flesh out the relationships, one being with uh, Essen and Alabaster, and we also have the addition of uh, her daughter and Shafa, and we actually have a chance to peek into Shafa's mind and see what's going through his head and just his twisted mindset that Guardians eventually adapt to. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I finished this book and I said... I really, really want to read the whole series. And also, I was kind of disappointed because it felt like so many of the chapters. And as I was going back through, I didn't I didn't manage to resketch all of the chapters, but I was kind of going back through and saying what happens in each in each chapter. And it really feels like this book had a whole bunch of things that needed to get into place that Nasun has to sort of learn. Um I mean, she has to learn a lot, but she also has to bring the relationship with her dad to the conclusion that it comes to, and her relationship with Shafa has to develop. And similarly, Esun has to figure out what it means to be part of the calm and whether she's going to be part of the calm. And just there were lots of plot points that had to be hit so that we could get to the end of Obelisk Gate so that we could get started and ready for book three. And I felt that a lot. Which is not to say that I didn't enjoy the book. I did. And I think there are some really, really powerful parts of it. And also, uh, that was my, that, that kind of plotting aspect was, was the thing that, that bugged me about it. Um, Rose, what about you? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I, I sort of felt like this is sort of the part in the show or whatever where you need a big, long speech by somebody to kind of give you the exposition that you need to get to the point where you understand what's going on so that you can start having, like, plot again in some mm-hmm. ways. It sort of reminded me like in 1984 when you have all this plot and then all of a sudden there's like the three chapters of like political manifesto. 
but you just kind of have to like have in there and then you can get back to what's going on. That's sort of like a lot of the calm stuff where she's in there and, and you're sort of getting a sense of how this group works and how they work together and how they don't work together and how all of that happens. And for me, a little bit of some of that, I was kind of like, all right, all right, all right. Like, <laughs> I want to know like what's going on. And there are so many mysteries that st- we still don't really know what's going on that by the end of this book, I was kind of like, I just want to know what's happening. <laughs> like, I just want to know like what is going on. And yeah. like, I, I think they reveal some stuff, which is great. And like, there are certain parts where parts where you have that moment of like, oh, like that's that is. But um, for me, by the end, I was like, oh, I think the third book's going to be like kind of just as freewheeling as that first one was, where you have tons of stuff happening. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of excited for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited for the third book. And I'm going to say very briefly, it's funny to me that you were kind of like, oh, this calm stuff, let's get past it. Because I actually found both sort of the logistics of thinking through like a calm in a season and what it means that this is going to be a season and that you have to plan really, really long term. And also what it meant for Esun to say, I'm going to be part of a community again. I found that stuff actually kind of interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what is going on with the people in this world and the relationships between them. And Rose, I'm going to let you you kick this one off on abusive relationships, and there are so many of them. So many. Yeah. It's interesting. I listened to the episode you guys did on this podcast about the first book, and I was really struck by um, like the ways in which you guys talked about the relationships in that first book and you know i i definitely read them very differently than i think you guys did i remember mm-hmm. i ended the first book just like hating every man in this book or seeing like <laughs> and you're all terrible you're all super abusive everybody is just con- trying to control these women particularly essen or whatever name she was going out of the by at the time shafa you know is physically abusive and emotionally abusive alabaster is emotionally abusive like I just, by the end, I was like, God, all of these men are the worst. Like, I just hate them all. Um, And I think, I mean, I don't think that's an accident. I think this is like a very interesting picture of a woman who has sort of suffered at the hands of multiple abusive people and kind of is trying to deal with that and come out on the other side. And, you know, that she has this love for Alabaster, even though he was really terrible to her in a lot of ways, in the same way that, you know, Nasen has this love for Shafa, who is, I think she even knows, like, she's, you know, she's. I think aware that like something weird is going on there and he's not the best. I mean, when he lashes out against her father, that's like obviously a red flag. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, Nasan obviously has this relationship with her father that's abusive. So there's just like so many terrible dudes in these books <laughs> that like women are basically having to constantly modulate their behavior around and make sure that they either give them what, you know, these women need or don't hurt them or kind of stay on their side or whatever it is. They t- she talks a lot about Nessun and, and Essen lying to maintain sort of a stability and mm-hmm. make sure that these men either don't feel threatened or, you know, make sure that their egos are intact or make sure that they don't lash out at them or they're not afraid. And like that really struck home for me. I just feel like that's such a theme throughout both of these books that you have all of these women essentially like modulating their behavior and making sure that the men around them feel comfortable and feel unthreatened because otherwise they won't be safe which is a really interesting i mean these are women who are like the most powerful people right they have this incredible magic and they still have to do this very human thing of making themselves safe in this way around all of these abusive people and i just thought that was like really striking to me um that it sort of continues in this book and you end up with the daughter also in these abusive relationships and it just was like this for me that feels like a really central part of this series mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well and even sort of being part of the calm like 
part of what Esun has to figure out is how to both how to make herself and the other origins seem safe so that they can be part of the community and also how to say like I'm really powerful and I'm not going to let you decide like we're not going to vote on who's a person um yeah yeah I mean I just feel like it's this like women of color are constantly saving us all the time uh-huh get that here too where it's like everyone is terrible and like will instantly turn on each other immediately and like the person who makes sure that everyone stays okay at her own like which is not like a cost-free thing for her right she takes a lot of stuff on and, and is you know doesn't sleep and doesn't eat and is very i think exhausted to make sure that everyone else around her is comfortable right and at least are or represented maybe is the better word for that I'm trying to find something to add, except that I mostly <laughs> just think that that's a really good reading and insightful thing to say that I did not. Like, I was I was able to sort of say, yes, there are some really abusive dynamics here. And I think, I wonder how I would have read Shafa and Nasun had I not previously had a history with Shafa. The first time, of course, it was, oh my god, it's Shafa. He is terrible and awful, and I know that he is incredibly dangerous. I didn't question that, of course, when Nasun started relating to Shafa, that, of course, that was going to be a terrible relationship. But I'm trying to remember what happened in the book. I mean, well, for me, I, I definitely noticed a, a huge shift in Shafa's behavior. Just, you know, once he was, once he, he sort of made that deal with, I'm, I'm assuming, Father Earth, and sort of lost his memories for a time, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't behave the same way with Nasun as he did with uh Essen or Damia when she was a child, you know, to, to discipline her, he would break her hand or resort to some form of violence whenever she was on the brink of losing control. But with Nasen, he's just, he's, he's completely different. He, he, he cares for, he sort of cares for her as his own child and is more than willing to uh, put his life on the line in order to de- defend her. Because I, I do remember at various points in the book where he has to quell this urge inside him, the, the urge that he, he gained after his uh, transformation to not steal the... I'm still not sure what it is exactly that he was stealing from uh, some of the people that he killed earlier in the book. Yeah, yeah, like he can he can sort of take power from someone and if he takes it from non-Origines, they just don't have very much of it and so they die. But I also feel like he really isolates not soon right like i mean partly he chases her father away and there are probably reasons to chase her father away when, but sort of everybody it's always like shafa is it seemed like he was very much like you need to have the relationship with me and you need to trust me and you need to like we are going to be the two and sort of the rest of the group it's very clear is is secondary and i feel like eventually he sort of turns her away from everybody else in found moon am i remembering that right yeah, he, yeah. he sort of takes ownership of her in a sense. Am I right now? Yeah, I mean, he definitely is priming her as like, I mean, this is like a classic abuser tactic, right? To like isolate you from all of your friends and family and to like make sure that you feel like you owe this person everything. Right. And even the other former guardian people there like don't really trust him and don't really, like you can, in, there's some segments where they talk about how they are very nervous around Nassan because like clearly some, like he's they don't want to cross him and you know, there's pulling her away to kind of do this other thing. 
Right. I mean, it just, like it makes me very nervous for what's going to happen because he's obviously not a good person. <laughs> like we yeah. should not be trusted. <laughs> well, um, I, so like he's he's prime. I feel like he's priming her for something terrible. Well, and it sort of concludes with him saying the moon's coming back, and I want you to bring the moon straight into Earth, right? Yeah. So he is priming her for something terrible, namely probably not literally world-ending apocalypse, but life-on-the-world-ending apocalypse. Let's go from the apocalypse to the mysterious figures popping up around the origins. What really interested me was the Stone Eaters. Okay. And their otherworldliness. Just because I remember reading uh, one of the uh, earlier quotes. I I think it was a witness report by someone who had uh, seen... One stone eater facing another one, and apparently he turned to, he turned away for a second, and the next thing he knew, one of the stone eaters was completely shattered, while the other one was standing above it with this terrifying smile on its face. And and so uh, stone stone eaters were once human, correct? They were they were ordained. That seems pretty strongly so. implied, and I think one yeah. of them confirms it in the book. Yeah. And then if they weren't ordained, they were definitely human at some time, just because I I remember a. Uh, uh, Hoa looking at Lyrna after the, the fall of... It, it was near the end of the book after Essen's power, after she tried to control the obelisk gate and things went out of whack, and Lyrna's freaking out, and he's just marveling at how uh, fluidly Lyrna moves, and he's saying that he's he's better off as a stone eater and that he doesn't miss his days as a flesh-and-bone human, and I, and I thought that was kind of funny. It's odd, just because they seem... There are those stone eaters who definitely despised humans, as as it was said in the book. But then there are some who seem, I'm assuming they, that's at least some of them can remember their past, can't they? The stone eaters? Yes. I think the way that I understood it was that they've lived for so long that they can remember certain things, but not a lot of things. Because at some point, I think you just sort of, everything blends together. That's sort of the way that I read that. Yeah, like I, I definitely had the sense that between being really long lived and coming out of a different society and the transformation involved, that they, there is some memory, but not a kind of clear one. But, and I feel like this is a sort of recurring echo, but I'm not sure I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. What, what do you, what do you two think of Hoa and uh, the rest of the Stone Eaters? I think I misjudge how dangerous Hoa is and how much he's kind of advancing his own identity or agenda. Yeah. I think she did a great job of introducing Hoa as this like child character and that now that we know that he's not that, we still I still at least yeah. definitely forget. And then you get these flashes of the fact that he is not only like an adult, but this whole other thing that has been alive for millennia maybe and has a very specific if even if we don't know what it is goal yeah and is using essen to move towards that goal and you know it he's gone from this kind of child naive sort of innocent character to i think possibly a force for evil (laughs) and we don't really know what he wants but we know that he's really powerful Mm -hmm. and that he can do whatever and i mean he kind of i guess he's like alabaster has antimony and essen has hoa you know there are a couple of moments where 
the narrator or or he who I'm thinking now is Hoa says things that are very ominous about you know I'm sorry that I used you I'm going to yeah. use you to get what I want yeah and all this yeah. stuff where I'm like oh no <laughs> like, you know because I think that that was a really interesting and like smart move on her part of like introducing to us this character who then who we sort of get to know as this little kid who then t- turns out to be possibly like one of the most powerful people in the entire series. Right. And I think not just agenda, but really specific agenda. Like it's clear that Antimony had a very specific plan yeah. that involved having Alabaster blow up the fulcrum. And it seems pretty clear that the gray stone eater has a pretty specific plan with Nasun and is trying to like move lots of things in place to get execute that. And presumably Hoa is at least as competent as the other two. And so, yeah. like, not just, oh, yeah, I kind of need Essun around and I need, to, I need her to have a few skills, but, like, I am playing chess and I am getting this position to exact, this, this, uh, piece to exactly where I need to get her so that she can do the one thing that I need her to do. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like in the third book, we're going to see that, that, that the characters that we've sort of grown to know, right? Essun, Nasun, and Alabaster are going to be positioned in a situation in which they're going to have to fight each other. Because they are, they are three stone eaters who are controlling them in a lot of ways, I think, want three different things. And I think that they are really just pawns in that like larger battle. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to have to face, and they are going to have to face that and make decisions in the end. It'll be interesting to see how much Essen and Nasen kind of go along with what their respective stone eaters want. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of me really is waiting for Essen to like come into her own and have her own, like, really have her own moment instead of sort of taking care of everybody else. I hope that happens in the third book. <laughs> um, that's kind of what I'm hoping for, but um, who knows? I, I just can't get past this one quote. It, it's it's near the end of uh, the 19th chapter, and uh, it's Poe speaking in the interlude, and he says, uh, death is a choice. I will make certain of that for you, but not for you. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to parse that out just because like Hoa to me it seems he definitely does love her in a way even if it may not be romantic but just just can't make full sense of that quote me I mean it's for you but not for you is it well and also like is love it in this book is not and in this series is not like not necessarily good there are lots of overtones <laughs> of like control and dependence and you know just going back to the the number of abusive relationships and the ways that those have manifested like i think he cares about her but like that is less important than lots of other things i just found that section of the book and i remembered that that was i think that's the interlude that's supposed to reveal to us that hoa is the narrator right cuz like right that's the part where it's in i statements all of a sudden and then there's this line where it says, ah, I grow sentimental, a few weeks nostalgia in flesh, and I forget myself. So it seems yeah. as though that's like, okay, he's he's in he's in the flesh, right, as the kid, and then he becomes a stone again. So I think that was the moment where I was like, oh, Ho is the narrator, right? Because like, I, I think that's what we're supposed to believe at that point. And I think that's supposed to be the big reveal there. Although I could be wrong. <laughs> we will return to the narrator of the Broken Earth, but first, some short fiction recommendations on the theme of libraries. 
Libraries are magical places. Perhaps it's because of the proximity to so many words, so many different worlds, that makes them seem like nexus points, crossroads, the meeting places and repositories of the hearts of humanity. When a library is created, it tells something about not just the librarian who compiled it, but the world they've come from and the world they'd like to see. As a reader, libraries are full of possibilities, full of endless adventures, because even a fairly small library might have so many books that a reader wouldn't be able to get through them all in a lifetime. It's a daunting thought, and as if coming to terms with the sheer weight of the books that have been created wasn't enough to handle. There are libraries rarer still that have long captivated the imagination. Fictitious libraries that take up whole universes, whole magical realms. Libraries of books that never were, or that were lost, or that contain every thought that could ever be. As a reader, it's a tantalizing idea, and one that many stories have used well in recent years at the short fiction level. So make sure your fines are paid up and your card is current as I take you through some rather recent explorations of speculative fictional libraries. Let's start with an older story that got a recent translation, The Universal Library by Kurd Laswitz, translated by Eric Bourne, which appeared in issue 9 of Mithila Review. The story is a thought experiment featuring a mathematician crunching the numbers on if it would be possible to create a library that would contain not only every work of literature ever created, but every work of literature that could ever be created. There are a lot of issues I have with the way it is framed, not counting graphics, for instance, but the central idea is wondering if we accept certain things about language and the potential for expression. How large would this universal library be? The answer is really big. It's an exercise in proving that something can be mathematically finite while being practically infinite, and showing the need for artists to cull out the useless multitude of books that contain characters that don't actually mean something. Basically, for me, it's making the point that the human imagination, in terms of language, is not necessarily infinite but that does nothing to reduce its power or wonder or need. And it's a cute little story in that sense, not really compelling in its plot, but one that still does a good job of selling its point, and it does a good, great job of setting up the stories later in the list. Which, next is The Touring Machines of Babel by Eric Schwitzgebel, which appeared in Apex number 98. The story seems to take place in the universal library imagined in the last story featuring characters that live their lives only in a small portion of the vast, vast space of the life. There are other people there, of course, and what seems to be strange rabbits that operate based on a code that makes this library like a giant computer, though whose function the main character doesn't understand, that no one seems to understand. And what I love about this story is that it makes the hypothetical space of the previous one literal, as a way of showing that in this place... There are technically books that would have all the truths of the universe, and others that would have only disastrous lies. And there's no real way to tell the differences without some frame, without some guide, or without a lot of study. And I like that the story shows that even in this space, the people try to figure out the rules of their world. They are still driven by scientific curiosity, by the desire to find some meaning in this seemingly meaningless universe. It seems to comment on the idea that if the imagination is technically limited, it's still the most powerful tool that humans have to explore their existence, 
and through method and study to pull meaning out of what might otherwise seem like nonsense or random chance. Moving on to a different kind of library, a very different kind of story, Matthew Bright's The Library of Lost Things from August 2017's Tor.com explores a library of lost works. Those works that have been destroyed either by the creators, by time, or by those opposed to the messages the works contain. They are compiled by a librarian, and Thomas joins the library to do some of the sorting, and is pulled into a situation where the librarian works to prevent those lost works from being read, while Thomas goes in search of one piece to reclaim it to capture something else that he has lost. The story does an amazing job of showing the damage that can be done when stories are lost, when books are lost, when voices are lost. That they leave a wound even if most people aren't aware of the wound. That they take up space even if it's just in this magical realm of the lost. Thomas is pushing back against the weight of history and violence and doubt and erasure. He's seeking to find, in all this pain, something beautiful and something meaningful. And it's just a great look at a library defined by how no one is supposed to use it. Another hypothetical space made literal, where Thomas is able to come to terms with his own wounds and hopes and start to find healing. Similarly, The Librarian's Dilemma by E. Saxe from the Journal of Unlikely Academia, shows a much more realistic library. It has a narrator, Jass, trying to navigate the ethics of texts and knowledge and erasure. He is faced with the very real issue that he works in a library containing books that have been suppressed, because the works involved are powerful and have the capacity to do great harm. Some of them, however, also have the power to fill in the missing parts of a history that would help people heal that would affirm the existence and struggle of people who have always been here, and he has the power to help the books get out, or to keep them locked away. The story is emotionally devastating, twists around and wrestles with the romance of texts that librarians should provide access, all the while looking at whether librarians also must be guardians as well, must keep books away from the general public. While it doesn't explore nearly so speculative a library as many of the other stories, it provides an essential complication to the idea of access and control. And in any event, it's a fantastic story. And lastly, perhaps to bring the mood back into happier and lighter realms, there's In Libres by Elizabeth Bear from Uncanny Number no. 4. And this story is a much funner story about libraries, about having to do some last-minute research to buff up a particularly important project and having to run a gauntlet to do it. The library here is dangerous and full of magic, a test in itself for unwary researchers. The action is fun and funny, and the character work is delightful. And after the previous stories, this is a wonderful palate cleanser, full of energy, hope, and adventure. So... There you have it, and you didn't even have to use the Dewey Decimal System. Cheers. Thank you, Charles. We'll return now to the question of the narrator of the Broken Earth Trilogy. There was a quote in Chapter 3, which is the chapter where Shafa falls into the ocean and, and makes his deal. Um, and the narrator, who I'm assuming is Hoa, and either of you can tell me if you've got a different reading on this, but he says... Perhaps you will mourn the Shafa who is lost. It's all right if you do. He was part of you once. So I think that this is Hoa talking to Esun. Caleb, I think you were the one who first pointed out to me that, like, who is the narrator is an interesting question in this book. Yeah, because there, there are several times when I've had to rethink 
the idea of who's narrating and exactly who's relaying the story to us, it's Alabaster, sort of bitterness in the way that uh, Alabaster speaks, but the way that Hoa speaks, the way he, he speaks is as if he's some sort of omnipotent being, which Father Earth. And it seemed to me that he was sort of laying the groundwork for what will happen. So are you still yeah. thinking it's Father Earth, or are you leaning towards Hoa, or...? I'm leaning more towards Hoa, just because in the interludes, he talks so lovingly of her. I'm, I'm unsure of Hoa's feelings towards us and whether they're romantic or if he sees her as a mother figure. Rose, do you have thoughts about narrator? Yeah, so this is a, a thing that like I alternatively like love and is a little bit infuriating to me that like by the end of this book we still don't know like who is talking and I think the challenge there is that when it is revealed it had better feel like this big reveal in some ways because it's been held uh-huh. out for us for so long that I feel like I don't know I I now have there's so much weight being like put on who is the narrator so for the first book I was pretty convinced that it was the daughter Nesson because she's not in it, you know, she's telling stuff be- from before she was born, but, like, she might know at this point, you know, what's going on. So I thought it was her. Huh. I am no longer convinced that it's her, because obviously in this book, like, she's not narrating her own story bits. So I am now more and more convinced that it's Hoa, or it's that gray stone eater who we sort of have seen a little bit of, who has kind of shown up and seems to be a force for evil. He's the one who's teaching Nessun some of the, you know, thread magic stuff. Um, um, he's the one who attacked Hoa in the in in the com, I think. He's the one Hoa was still sort of masquerading as a, a boy, a child. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I think it's probably Hoa. But yeah, it is a I sort of wish that at this point we had a little bit more to go on in terms of, of what who that person is. Because, you know, at this point the, they're either an omnipotent narrator or they're a very unreliable narrator, depending on who it is. And so that will change the reading of the book. So it does feel to me like once we know who it is, I'm going to want to go back and almost reread to kind of see what perspective that character might have brought here and what they might have left out or what they might have included. And so part of me kind of wants to know where the information I'm getting is coming from. And that might just be the journalist person and me like being like, but who is speaking here? <laughs> That that leads to a sort of interesting question. How reliable or unreliable do we take the narrator? I mean, I sort of assume that the narrator is giving basically all of the relevant information and only when they're really intruding with sort of obvious you emotionally laden statement kind of comments are they editorializing and that the rest of the time when the narrator seems to kind of fade in the background and doesn't intrude in, I sort of, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, I'm being given all of the important and relevant facts in order to tell the story. But I tend to be a pretty naive reader in that way. I always assume the opposite. I always assume that the narrator is unreliable. I bet we had a very different experience reading the book (laughs) just because (laughs) of that. Yeah. You don't know necessarily. And I think it's especially those little editorialized versions when when the narrator steps in and says, you know, you've been really stressed out, like, you might not remember this. And those are some red flags for me because I was like, oh, you are supplanting whoever you is, whoever the narrator is, is supplanting mm-hmm. their version of history here. 
and you know because there's such subtext in the books about who writes history these books that they have we're getting these texts from these you know memories of the different seasons and then there's this question of you know there might have been seasons that aren't recorded why aren't they recorded who writes kind of the history that i feel like that's an important question to ask when we're reading it because they're i think that she's clearly like wants to kind of probe the question of who determines what is culture and what is history and what we prepare for and all of that. And so I think that it makes sense to question, okay, well then who is this story's perspective from? Yeah. It does make sense to question that. (laughs) (laughs) No, you have to go back and reread both books. (laughs) I do have to go back and reread both books. One of the things that talking about this book has made me realize is I think Jemison knows fantasy conventions really well. And has a pretty good idea of the expectations of fantasy readers. And that she is, I wouldn't even necessarily say playing with those. I think I would say using and twisting those. Fantasy readers really like solving problems and understanding what is going on in the world. How big and complicated a set of magic and things involving magic and different interlocking relationships can you make to sort of keep people distracted and saying what is going on while also telling the rest of this story like the wise mentor the magical mentor like hoa takes on a lot of roles and alabaster takes on a lot of roles that i think i'm used to seeing as playing pretty straight with the main character and the person who is trying to learn and i think in some ways because of that i'm just not as ready to read this book or to sort of understand what the revelations are going to be not in a bad way, but just I, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be blindsided in book three on a couple of occasions. <laughs> I think everyone will. I hope so. I think that's like going to be the fun part, right? Where you're going to yeah. get a lot of stuff revealed and it's going to, I'm, I'm going to hope like all kind of comes together in that, that great way where you're like, ah, I got it now. Yep. Spoiler, it did. Thanks for listening to the first part of the discussion about the Obelisk Gate on Cabbages and Kings, and thank you for your patience during this hiatus. I've dropped off Twitter, but I do still welcome feedback. Drop me an email at contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. Let me know what you think of the show, who should be on it, how it can be improved, or what we should talk about. Thanks for listening, and happy reading.